1: Thank you for being here for Political Rewind today. We've got an awful lot to talk about, so I want to get right to our topics at hand and welcome our panel. Uh, Eric Tannenblatt is back with us. Eric, of course, is the head of global government relations for Denton's, the world's largest law firm, Uh, but he's former chief of staff. For uh, Governor Sonny Perdue and has worked extensively in uh, Republican politics for decades, working with presidential candidates, candidates for statewide office and, uh, and and many others. Eric, thanks for coming back. We haven't been doing many political shows lately. It's great to have you back on the show.
2: Good to be with you.
1: Uh, Terry Anulowitz, Representative Terry Anulowitz joins us, too. She, of course, represents Smyrna. Um, and uh, we're going to, in a little while, not right now, Terry, but we're going to talk a little bit about what the heck happened to an innocent little license plate bill supporting tennis that you sponsored, uh, went what it went through and transform, being transformed in the legislature. We'll get to that in a minute. In the meantime, thanks for joining us, Terry.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Bill.
1: Um, all right. So within the hours before Juneteenth, which uh, is today, of course, a celebration. Uh, that started in Texas when uh, slaves in Texas got word that the eman- they'd been emancipated. The Emancipation Proclamation had been signed by President Nick- uh, Lincoln a couple of years earlier, uh, but the uh, folks in Texas didn't get word until the end of the Civil War. And so the holidays started with, with that um, word getting to the slaves of Texas. But about an hour and a half before the beginning of Juneteenth, a Big crane moved into the Decatur Square, and in front of a crowd of a couple hundred people, the Confederate monument was taken down. It's been the subject of controversy for years. It was removed legally. Uh, recently, the city of Decatur went into court to argue that it had become a public safety hazard because of all the demonstrations that had been taking place around it. Judge Clarence Seliger agreed, which allowed him to uh, order the statue be taken down. Uh, Terry Anulowitz, a tribute to the Confederacy, gone in about an hour. Interesting, isn't it?
0: (laughs) It is fascinating. I think it is very positive. I've I've spent four years living in Decatur when I was in college. Decatur is someplace that is very close to my heart. And a monument that I think the intent was very clear was to intimidate. It was it was not to be a reminder of any Confederate valor. It was to be a reminder of um, what what was happening under Jim Crow. And I think the public safety argument is quite fascinating. I commend that. And I'm I'm glad that it's gone. I think it was time.
1: Eric Canblatt, your thoughts.
2: Well, look, I, I, this has obviously been something that has been controversial for many years. The, the way that this uh, got taken down uh, is, is somewhat unique, and we'll see what happens after this. But um, I think for those people that uh, have really advocated for this to, to come down, uh, I think it was a, a, a time for them to, uh, to celebrate, especially uh, on the eve of what we're celebrating today.
1: Yeah, I think it. it I, I presume. I'm, I'm making an assumption that the effort to take it down was held up until late in the evening to try to uh, uh, take away from getting too much attention, having the possibility of people coming and protesting the move or whatever. Nevertheless, a couple hundred supporters, according to the Atlanta Journal Constitution, did get word and showed up to kind of celebrate as the uh, monument came down. So let's stick with a, a kind of a similar theme. Um, Eric, the, um, this we know the hate crimes bill is continuing to move, or we hope move, I think many people hope, move through the legislature in this, uh, the last days of this uh, virus-delayed session. Uh, there was a Senate hearing on the bill finally, Uh, last night. They've had the House bill for um, a year now and not taken any action at all on it. They finally had a hearing on it last night. Dentons has a couple of lawyers who are working with the Anti-Defamation League on this, Sam Olins and Edward Lindsay. Um, But where do we think this measure now stands, especially the the fact that Jeff Duncan, the lieutenant governor, has a very different version of the bill than the House bill?
2: Well, I think the most significant development that has happened within the last uh, couple of weeks is the leadership of the lieutenant governor, because as you indicated, the bill did not move in the Senate. The House bill, which I compliment the Speaker and Terry and the members of the House for passing uh, the bill, has been sitting in the Senate. And the the fact that the Senate leadership has stepped forward and said "We, we would like to see a hate crimes bill, I think is, is moving the process along. I thought yesterday's hearing uh, was very constructive. Uh, it was actually on the House bill. And uh, while there was references to the bill that the lieutenant governor had introduced the, or introduced the day prior, uh, it was really focused on the House bill. And there was some very compelling testimony, including Uh, the concluding testimony from uh, my colleague, Sam Olin, the former attorney general of Georgia. And uh, I'm hopeful. I think that uh, Georgians uh, are demanding that uh, we uh, have a hate crimes bill uh, on the books. There's a lot of effort underway by the business community and various civic groups. And uh, I just think that uh, the timing is right. And having the leadership in both chambers uh, behind it uh, it's just coming up with the, the final the final bill.
1: Terry, the state Senate is a different animal than the state House in many respects, one of which is in the, in the House, when Speaker Ralston or any speaker says he or she really wants something to happen, typically the body goes along with what the speaker wants. That's not so much the case in the Senate where the lieutenant governor doesn't necessarily have a lot of control over the leadership, even of his own party in the Senate. Do you think that even with Duncan's support, you see any reason to believe that senators who hadn't been uh, jumping on the board this last session are slow walking at this time? Or do you think there's a genuine effort to get something done?
0: So there are several things happening at once with, with, you know, because you're right, there is a very different leadership dynamic in the House than in the Senate I think one reason why you might have some folks in the Senate who might be considering walking more towards the direction of the House bill is because right now the House is hearing a lot of bills that passed the Senate before crossover day. And I think that some of their sponsors in the Senate would like to see something happen with that legislation before we have sine die here at the Capitol. Um, Erica, I, yeah, are you I've,
1: confident? Oh, go ahead.
0: Oh, no, since it's Finish be, it, Terry. <laughs> No, to be completely transparent, I fully support the House bill. I think that it's clear when you read when you read the two versions of this hate crimes bill. You have Chuck Estration, uh House Bill 426, then you have um, in, in, you know, from, that was presented yesterday before the committee meeting, and then you have the Senate version of the bill. It's very clear when you when you look at these two pieces of legislation, the different level of care and thought from a process standpoint and from a legal standpoint that went into the House version of the bill. You know, we had Georgia, there was a hate crimes bill in Georgia several years ago. It was struck down by the Supreme Court of Georgia. So this bill in the House was really crafted with being able to withstand an inevitable legal challenge in mind. And I think that that was one of the things that former Attorney General Owens pointed out very, very clearly, was that the Senate version of this bill is really lacking in that kind of airtight technical uh, sophistication that, that, that the house bill does have. One of the things I wanted to comment on too, it's, um, oh, sorry, you could, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I was just, let you know, me I throw it to going, Eric and have him answer that.
2: Yeah, no, I was just going to, to add that. Yeah. Obviously the house worked on their bill a lot longer and, and, and so, uh, there was probably a lot more thought given to it, but there are some aspects of the Senate bill or what the Lieutenant governor proposed That are actually being praised by some at the hearing yesterday, including the ADL. Uh, One, one provision in particular is data collection. Now the question becomes, do you pass the house bill and then add that later on? Or do you go ahead and, and amend the house bill and add it and then bring it back to the house? But I do feel like there's a, there's a sense that there's a feeling that, uh, you know,
1: that people want to pass a hate crimes bill. Terry one last word before we got to take a break.
0: Yeah well, well one thing about the data collection is that in the Senate version of the bill the data co- that is collected wouldn't be subject to the sunshine law in Georgia and I think that's something that's definitely notable.
1: All right, um, we're going to be talking about hate crimes for the next week for sure as the legislature continues. We got a lot more I want to talk about with our panel uh, today but we are in the last day of of our spring pledge drive. I know. That those of you who are devoted to Political Rewind don't like it when we keep interrupting the show asking you to support us. But the fact of the matter is we only do it twice a year, and it is crucial for us to get your support if we're going to continue during, doing the work that we are doing. So, um, if you've already uh, supported Political Rewind, the other shows uh, that you hear on, uh, on, our, uh, on GPB radio, thank you very much, if not... Here's your last chance today to do it. Uh, Here's how you can. State Representative Terry Anolowitz and Eric Tannenblatt uh, with me today on Political Rewind. By the way, Jim Galloway is off today. Uh, uh, Double whammy in the Galloway household. Jim was working in his woodworking shop. And he hurt his hand. It's nothing terrible, but he's got to have a little surgery to repair it. And on top of that, he's taking a couple weeks off because his wife, Judy, has had knee surgery. So we send our best wishes out to the wounded Galloways, and we're looking forward to having Jim back as soon as we possibly can. All right, Eric Tannenblatt, uh, I know this is a story that many Republicans cringe at at, uh, having to uh, deal with. But, you know, it's interesting. We talk about the hate crimes bill, and there are those who say, well, this will impede uh, freedom of speech, or it will uh, try to police thought. In, In fact, the hate crimes legislation doesn't do that. Hate crimes legislation wouldn't even stop 14th District Republican congressional candidate Marjorie Taylor Greene, From making some of the statements that have come to light now that she is in a runoff for that, uh, what was going to be an open seat, Uh, she's a supporter of QAnon. And here's just one of the comments that was uncovered recently by Politico.
0: There is an Islamic invasion into our government offices right now okay they are you you saw after midterm elections what we saw so many muslims elected i don't know i don't know the exact number but there were quite a few what we had that woman out of minnesota now she's going into congress and she's got to wear a head covering you know they want to put their hand on the Quran and be sworn in no you have to be sworn in on the bible but we have an islamic invasion into our government offices
1: All right. So, Eric, first of all, uh, Sam Burmas Dawes uh, points out, among other things, that you do not have to be sworn in on the Bible, forgetting about the offensive comments themselves. There have been a couple of presidents, he tells me, that didn't use a Bible to be sworn in, including uh, Theodore Roosevelt and uh, John Quincy Adams. And locally, decab. i am sorry, in Athens— Clark County commissioner was sworn in a copy of Malcolm X biography a few years back. That's beside the point, but it's interesting. Uh, Republicans have been rushing now to condemn obviously this kind of language and the support for Marjorie Taylor Greene seems to be evaporating.
2: Yeah, uh, I'm I'm glad this is radio and not television because you would have seen me look like (laughs) I was about to throw up with those disgusting, inappropriate comments. And You know, I I could not be more pleased to see Republican leadership from Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House, to Steve Scalise, to members of our Georgia congressional delegation uh, speaking out uh, against uh, her comments. And and I just hope, you know, the the voters of the 14th congressional district uh, are paying attention because uh, we don't need... Georgians don't need this. The people of the 14th district don't need this, let alone the Republican Party. I mean, we, we don't need someone like uh, Marjorie Greene serving uh, with with those types of views and comments.
1: So, Terry, here's, you know, Eric, it, you know, the Republicans are rushing like Eric to condemn her. But here's another side of this. Uh, her support for QAnon was no secret. Uh, it was known as she was running in the first place. Uh, we may not have heard the audio. My recollection is there was some audio of her offensive remarks that came out before the actual election. And she still came in first in uh, that election, not enough to go uh, uh, win the nomination without a runoff. And she did initially have support from Jim Jordan, from Jody Heiss here, who's now rescinded his endorsement. But it isn't as if this was a complete unknown factor.
0: That's exactly right. This is this is not a mystery. She did not come into this as an unknown commodity. She had actually initially started campaigning to run in the Republican primary for the sixth congressional district, which is where she actually lives, which is in Fulton County. She's a Fulton County resident. Uh, I think she realized that the numbers were not going to be in her favor there. You know, Karen Handel actually won that Republican primary pretty, pretty soundly. Uh, so she decided when the 14th became open, it, it was it, it was an opportunity. I And mean, so that and that's what's so fascinating. And I, I'm glad that she is losing some of these endorsements that she originally had. I think it's, it's it's concerning that folks ever thought, because I think, again, from the Republicans who I've spoken to about this and who have watched this unfold over the past few months, she was a known commodity going into this. And I think there were some misgivings within some GOP circles, even about why folks like Jody Heiss were not being more aggressive in in denouncing the things that she said. Again, it's great that it's happening now, but primaries are funny things. And this is an interesting district. As a Democrat, this is not a district that I think is going to be even remotely flippable. But it's a district that I think whoever wins this is going to have a a pretty strong voice representing Georgia. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is certainly not the voice that needs to be representing Georgia in Washington.
2: Well, I should also add too that Karen Handel, when Marjorie Green was in that sixth district race, did point out some of the issues related to Marjorie Green. I don't know what was behind Congressman Jordan and, and Jody Heiss's uh, endorsement, if it was an effort to try and get her out of the sixth district and into the 14th district. I don't think people fully knew much about her. I didn't know who she was when she was running against Karen Handel for that short period of time. So I don't know that she was really fully vetted. And as you said, Terry, she was not. She's not from the 14th district. So I don't even think people in the district even knew who she was. But I'll tell you now. I think people do know who she is and what <laughs> she stands for. Yeah. And I hope that they, uh, y- y- you know, step forward and and make sure that. Her opponent, uh, Dr. Cowan, is the nominee for the Republicans in that district.
1: Eric, in a related item, uh, the uh, chairman of the Georgia Republican Party, David Schaefer, has now uh, said he wants the party here in Georgia to adopt a uh, uh, language it, it, that uh, condemns uh, racism, condemns racist uh, uh, talk. Um And, uh, uh, well, we're going to have to wait and do that. Tom Faust is telling me I've got to get to a break. But when we come back, let's pick up on David Schaefer. Uh, But right now, let's go.
2: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News's extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
1: Go to another pledge break. Eric Tannenblad, I'm, t- I'm a little bit behind on this story that I started to mention before the break. Uh, as of le- yesterday, uh, state Uh, GOP Chair David Schaefer wanted the party to adopt a resolution that denounces racism, opposes excessive use of force by police, expresses support for peaceful protests. It also goes on to say it opposes uh, uh, efforts to defund the police. They were supposed to be voting on it yesterday. I actually, I'm sorry to say, don't know whether that happened, but it seems to me an important statement by a Republican Party that's been under some fire uh, on issues like this.
2: Yeah, and uh, I know there was a state committee meeting uh, yesterday. Um, in fact, I heard that Jason Thompson, uh, Julianne Thompson, who's a regular um, participant on your show, her husband was reelected national committee man. Look, I I applaud David, and the, and I'm hopeful that the state Republican Party uh, passed the resolution. The Republican Party remembers the the party of Lincoln. And, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, I think it's lost that, uh, you know, the Republican Party stands for everything that's in that resolution. And so I think, uh, you know, from time to time, you have to restate things, uh, you know, for someone like me, it's restating the obvious. But um, I think it's really a, a really important message for the Republican Party to send.
1: Terry and all of us, let me change subjects uh, and throw something out that uh, was not uh, something that I thought we were going to end up talking about, but it's an important issue for you. You're getting set for another legislative session. You introduced a bill. I assume you're a tennis player. You thought it would be a great idea to have a license plate celebrating tennis in Georgia. What an interesting, innocent idea. How's that going, Terry? <laughs> the
0: little tennis bill that couldn't. Although, right now, <laughs> as, as as we broadcast this, the House Rules Committee was meeting, and we were actually introducing a substitute. There was a Senate bill, Senate Bill 336, sponsored by Chairman Gooch, that passed the Senate. It has a couple of license plates in there. And so I talked to Chairman Richard Smith at the House Rules Committee and Senator Gooch, and and they agreed to go ahead and add the language from the tennis bill to the um the Army Ranger license plate tag bill. And the reason why we've had to go through, I've actually spent more time working on this tennis tag bill than I have probably spent on a tennis court in my entire life. Um, So we are (laughs) trying, trying to get this done. And the reason we have had to go through so many hoops to get this little tennis bill Done and and to to clarify, there you know there are a lot of license plates in Georgia, but the tennis foundation in Georgia has met every requirement put forward by the Department of Revenue to have this tag. This is just sort of the final check they need to be able to make this official. Is is the is the stamp of approval from the General Assembly? But I received notice on Monday that the tennis tag bill, which passed out of the House earlier this year in the before time before crossover day was going to be heard before the Senate Public Safety Committee. I thought, wow, that is super interesting because I did not think that license plate bills were going to be a particularly high priority as we go into this this pretty intense time with hate crimes bills and, and you know, budget cuts. But here we go. So I was, I've had my little packet of me and my file folder and my picture of the license plate ready to go over there. And I, before it was right before the meeting, I talked to Senator Albers, who was chairing the Senate Public Safety Committee. And he said, yeah, so by the way, We're not going to have the tennis bill. This is now going to be a general immunity bill for businesses related to COVID-19. So (laughs) there we are. And that's called stripping. Stripping. The bill was stripped. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's it was hijacked, uh, yeah. but now it, all right. So that that measure will still uh, move forward. There will be an effort in the legislature to uh, indemnify businesses against uh, employees who uh, get test, become uh, positive for COVID nineteen. But you're going to now have a different way to get your simple little. Just a bill, that, little bill, Eric. We know this language well. It's a little bill that does one thing and one thing only. The biggest cliche in the Georgia General Assembly, Eric. Yeah, um, sorry about that, Terry. I, I do. I did see a little clip that you did
2: explaining what stripping is uh, on Twitter, and I rec- recommend that to to others. I also uh, do want to report that uh, while terry was speaking i did check and that resolution by the georgia General, uh, republican party did pass yesterday
1: uh good thank you for uh pointing that out uh, uh to us uh eric um so uh i i i think it's important that uh tom faust do you know how, how much time do we have until we've got to get to another break can you give me a heads up we've got a couple minutes uh, so let me set this up for you, Terry, and you, Eric, and then we'll probably have more time to talk about it after the break. Um, this is because the, the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks uh, has been another uh, moment in, in our lives that has accelerated uh, protests, uh, some anger about police violence against African Americans. It's also begun conversations about uh, supporting the police because they have dangerous work. It, 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 and what I want to get to is that Paul Howard, uh, Eric, the uh, uh, Fulton County District Attorney, moved very quickly to charge the two officers involved in this incident with uh, uh, many felony counts, including felony murder. He did it even while the GBI was just initiating its investigation of what actually happened in the Rayshard Brooks case. And he clearly did it, um, to to some people's way of thinking, uh, for motives that are not necessarily related to what he was able to determine about the action itself that led to Rayshard Brooks' death. All right, so I'm setting that all up. So that we can talk about it when we get back from our final pledge break of Political Rewind. And again, I remind you all this is Political Rewind's last day for a spring drive. Please give us any support you can so we can keep the show moving forward. And here's again how you can do it. Terry Anulowitz, the uh, shooting death of Rayshard Brooks last Friday night was another devastating blow to the many people out there who have been so concerned over the years about uh, the um, lack of safety that they believe African-Americans have in dealing with uh, police. Uh, At the same time, uh, very quickly, uh, Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard moved to uh, uh, indict both of the officers involved. There's a charge of felony murder. There are 10 other charges involved. The GBI had really just launched its investigation. And so uh, yesterday and today, an increasing number of people have suggested that maybe Paul Howard should recuse himself from this case and it should be turned over to another district attorney because Howard is in a, 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 a very competitive runoff election right now. He himself is under investigation by the GBI. The point is, Terry, this becomes a very delicate matter, and uh, I'm curious how you're assessing it right now.
0: You are exactly right that there is a lot happening, beyond the tragedy of the fact that Richard Brooks lost his life, and beyond the fact that, he lost his life during a time period with which there is intense debate and discussion and really thoughtful and meaningful discussion happening about how police use force in, in Atlanta and in the United States about how we fund the police in Atlanta, about what percentage of our city's budget go towards you know law enforcement, militarization of police, when maybe we should be putting more money into, into strengthening our community so there's less need for police. So in the midst of all this, then you also do have this primary runoff that the district attorney, Paul Howard, is in. And that's a very contentious race. And yeah, there are lots of delicate layers to this situation. And my personal opinion is I'm inclined to think that he should, that he should recuse himself. I think that because there are so many questions about his motivating factors, especially in light of how quickly, you know, an indictment was brought when the GBI was still investigating, I think that it might be, this whole process might be cleaner and might be a cleaner way to get justice for Richard Brooks, if this, if 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 someone else takes over on the Fulton County side,
1: Eric, Eric Cannonblad.
2: Yeah, I, you know, look, I I think that um, the fact that there's a cloud over this related to Paul Howard, I think, is taking away from the real issue that uh, people are concerned about, both here in Georgia and as people look around the country. Uh, and so uh, if Paul Howard truly does believe that what he is doing uh, is not politically motivated, then perhaps the thing for him to do is to recuse himself and let uh, the process play out. Um, I think as long as he continues uh, to, to stay involved, there's going to continue to be uh, voices out there that are going to qu- question Motives, And I think that that really takes away from the the real issue. Uh, I don't know enough about, you know, all of the the facts related to, you know, the district attorney's actions. So it wouldn't be fair for me to make a final judgment. But I do think, you know, uh, perception is reality. And I think we need to keep our eye on what the real issue is. And we don't need any sideshows.
1: Well, you know, Terry, what makes this really more complicated is that the GBI, which traditionally handles investigations of police shootings, is, is, as I said, they're really just getting underway. The indictments have already been handed down. You cannot unring that bell. If GBI comes back with reporting that, um, for whatever reason, uh, tends to cast doubt on whether or not that, that perhaps this was a justified shooting, and, and I certainly don't want to presume I have any uh, insight about that. It really puts the Fulton County judicial system in a fix, doesn't it?
0: It's a real, it's a, it's a terrible predicament. And you know, again, to to what Eric said a moment ago, it's we're losing what the focus of this investigation mm-hmm. should be, and that is something that I think we have to be very, very careful that we, that we don't, you know, that that, that we don't lose, you know, that someone dies. The question is, you know, should that, should that level of force have been used? And you're right. I mean, the GBI has a process that they go through, you know, and there have been cases with, with police shootings in Georgia where after the GBI investigates, it's then kicked up to the department of justice to investigate. So it's a long process typically. And I understand the, the hunger and the urge and the the motivation to have swift justice, but I also think that you're right. Fulton County is in a real is in a real pickle if if information is you know if if these charges then become questioned.
1: All right, we are uh, close to uh, out of time for today's uh, political rewind. Um, we didn't get a chance. One of the things I was hoping we'd be able to discuss more fully if at all, is uh, the two Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court decisions this week that uh, were greeted very critically by President Trump. We have this assumption that a conservative court, two justices who of, who, of whom he appointed, uh, was going to rule in his favor. They ruled against him on uh, eliminating DACA, and they ruled against him on Title VII, which they said does protect uh, people who are LGBTQ. We're going to take that, get into that conversation in much greater depth on Monday when we have a panel of constitutional law experts and immigration law experts that will pursue exactly uh, what's going on with the Supreme Court right now. So we're going to have to hold that conversation till Monday. In the meantime, Eric Tannenblatt, Terry Anulowicz, thank you for being a part of the show. I'm so glad to have you back on Political Rewind. It's great to hear your smart voices on our show again. Um, And to all of you out there again, uh, one final pledge break uh, for us in this spring, uh, uh, fall, or rather the spring break period, back on Monday with a full show. Have a great weekend. Take care and please stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.